What's up, guys, and welcome back to a brand new episode of Listen to Me Speak. It feels so good to say that. We are on season three, episode six. I am your host, Kayla Taylor, and thank you guys so much for being patient with me as I recovered. I had some surgery, so I just needed time to recover, not only for my body, but my mind as well, but I feel refreshed enough, and so I just couldn't wait to get back at it. So thank you again for being so patient, and now you don't have to be patient anymore because I am back, and not only that, but I do have a special episode in the works for you guys. I'll tell you a little bit about it without, you know, giving you everything, of course. But I am working on a bonus episode that'll be just about Euphoria, season two, the finale. Of course, if I had it my way, I would have gotten that episode out to you guys a lot quicker. My plan was to actually get the episode out a week after the finale, but life happens and things aren't always in our control. I'm getting better every day and hopefully we don't I don't have to deal with any more hiatuses for the podcast. But to make it up to you guys, I am planning a bonus episode like I said, and I think you guys are going to enjoy it, especially the Euphoria fans out there. And I am bringing on another special guest. I won't reveal who it is yet, but I do have a special guest joining me for that episode. You guys are going to love her. She's great. So be on the lookout for that episode. It's going to be dropping on a different day than I usually drop my podcast episode. So make sure you stay tuned. Make sure you're following me on all social media. I will give you the links to my social media at the end of the episode. But without wasting any more time, let's finally get into episode six, shall we? So unfortunately, I'm starting off this episode on a bit of a somber note. A couple of days ago, it was announced that Tracy Braxton from the Braxton family passed away from cancer. I believe it was throat cancer. She was only 50. And before I say anything else, I do want to pass on my condolences and and share my thoughts and prayers with her family because I, I know they're going through a hard time. And, you know, it. I think for all of us who have lost someone to cancer, it kind of hits close to home. I just read something about Kalisa's husband, I think an hour ago that he had passed from stomach cancer as well. So I'm passing on my condolences to Kalisa and her family as well. But um, cancer, cancer fucking sucks. And I was, I was really shocked to read that news. I was just, I think I had just finished eating breakfast. I went on my phone that morning and TMZ, of course it was TMZ, broke the news. And she fought the battle privately, which is why I think a lot of us were shocked because she didn't speak on it publicly. Her family respected her wishes and didn't speak on it publicly. My mom actually ended up showing me a picture. I think it was from Tracy's son's wedding. And she looked really, really skinny, like sickly thin. And my mom told me she looked at that picture and wondered if she was okay, if she was sick. And of course, it's tale as old as time. People were being so horrible to her about her weight and how she looked in the comments that she apparently disabled them before completely taking the photo down. And it really bothers me that people, every time someone passes, whether it's Tracy, it's Chadwick, oh, be kind to people because you never know what they're going through, but be a, be a decent human being and just be kind. It shouldn't take someone dying or being sick for you to be kind to them. Unfortunately, sometimes that's what it takes, but that shouldn't be the case. And Tracy, considering her battle, the fact that she managed to get dressed, get up, smile for photos, go to her son's wedding, that says a lot because I'm sure she was in a lot of pain, but she still mustered through all of that pain to go to her son's wedding. 
posted a picture probably because she was happy that her son got married. She wanted to share the love, celebrate, only to have to face abusive and horrible comments on the photo. So bad that she ended up deleting the photo. So stuff like that enrages me because social media, I think, shows the worst of people. It shows just how insensitive people are, like in general, but also when it comes to death. So, of course, and and it won't stop with Tracy. It'll be someone else who gets sick and and we'll see a photo of them and people will be horrible. And then months or years later, they'll pass and and everybody will be like, oh, my God, I didn't know that's what they were going through. Just just be a decent human being. Um, But Tracy's death was it was sad to read partly because it was so unexpected and also partly because anybody who watched the Braxton's reality show or just knew of Tracy, was a fan of her music, was a fan of her on that show. She just was such a bright light. She was one of, they were all funny together. You put them, that that's why their reality show was entertaining for so long because they were all funny. Like I think back to that clip that always goes viral from that show where they made this daddy song where they were like teasing Tawanda and I think her husband about them having sex and, and it's funny I always see it kind of go viral on Twitter and, and TikTok and after news of Tracy's passing broke um I saw a lot of people kind of reposting like funny clips from the show involving Tracy and her sisters and you know it just she was so young so talented it's always sad when when people go before their time like you just at 50 years old you definitely deserve more time than that and so Again, my prayers go out to her family, her son especially, and and I think he has a child too, so she was a grandmother, and you know, just praying for that family because it's already hard enough going through something like that, but they're also public figures, and so the fact that they had to deal with their sister passing and then also go, okay, well, we have to put out a statement so that, you know, people know that, you know, the news is true and, and we can ask for privacy, like, I feel like when you're grieving, that's the last thing you need to be worried about. And I'm pretty sure their, the, their um, whatchamacallit, their PR team, their spokesperson probably drafted out the letter and posted it on, the, on Tony's social media and on the rest of their social medias on their behalf. But it just sucks that they can't just grieve and be left alone. You kind of have to do all that the extra bullshit. But may she rest in peace. We are only in March, and I feel like this year is already kicking our asses. But I do want to move on to some lighter topics and get into one of the biggest movies of the year outside of Spider-Man and eventually um, Doctor Strange, of course. But of course, it's the Batman. And I was, I've was i really been looking forward to this movie ever since my high from, you know, Spider-Man kind of dwindled. Well, technically, Spider-Man, technically Spider-Man came out last year. So technically, the Batman is the biggest movie of the year right now for um, for comic book movies. Anyway, once my like high from Spider-Man died down and we got closer to the Batman's release, I started to get hyped and my dad was able to score us tickets early. We went and saw the film March 1st as like the DC fan experience or fans first look or something like that. It was super cool. It made me feel like like an official film critic. I got to see the movie early. It, it, it made me feel good about myself. Yeah, I, you can definitely tell I'm a nerd and it's funny because my, my dad and I, we wore the ba- our Batman shirts and he laughed and he was like oh he's like we're gonna be in the theater with a bunch of nerds and I remember looking dad at our shirts and I'm like dad we're, we're wearing matching Batman shirts I think we're nerds too and he just laughed but that was a that's a, one of my favorite things about watching comic book movies is going to see it with my dad just because we always have um really good dialogue about these films and he's like of course I have friends that are are 
movie buffs as well, but we have, like, really good, like, we will sit and break down the movie and, like, dissect it as soon as we get out of the theater and kind of, like, pick each other's brains about the film, which is always fun to do. And I'm glad I have a family member that I can do that with, too, because, like I said, it's cool to have friends that do it, but, like, it's a, for me, it's one of my favorite ways to bond with my dad, so seeing comic book movies with him is always more fun because we could literally talk about it for an hour and after we saw the Batman I, I remember like we talked about it and I remember thinking to myself oh I really just have to 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 let uh, sit with the movie and just let it absorb even before I put my uh, non-spoiler review on Letterboxd I didn't put it up there right away because I really wanted the movie to soak I didn't watch any movies before I did my review of the Batman just because I wanted to remember everything and it's a three-hour film so I feel like it's one of those movies that you probably should watch again. And, and thankfully it'll be on HBO Max, I think, sometime next month, early next month. I think there's an official date, but it's it's slipping my mind at the moment. But it's definitely a movie you should watch again because there are, you're bound to, with any movie, you're bound to miss some things, but especially with a three-hour film. Like, I really wish I had Batman's little goggles, the specialty goggles he had that recorded everything he looked at so that I could remember every bit and piece, especially with the way that I like to dissect movies. I like to talk about the shots, the cinematography, the audio, like all of these different things. And sometimes it's easy to miss. Like when I watch a movie, I can't help but like make little notes or even when I listen to albums, it's actually quite annoying because sometimes I just want to be able to watch or listen to things without doing that, but I just can't help it sometimes. And so when I watch a movie in the theaters, the downside to that is I'll try to make a note of it, of what I saw, but if it was a tiny thing, I won't remember. So another reason why I kind of gave my Batman review to Letterboxd first, I try to prioritize the podcast first, but I knew I wouldn't have, I wouldn't be doing a podcast episode until now, and I didn't want to miss any of my, I didn't want to forget any of my notes or my train of thought, so I kind of put it out there first. I definitely do plan on watching the movie again, just like I said, so I can get another full grasp of the film. But I think this review that I have for the podcast does a pretty good job um, of getting every every main point across that I want to. Now, obviously, this review will have spoilers in it. So if you have not seen the Batman yet, and I'd be kind of shocked if those of you who are listening haven't seen it yet. But in case you haven't, definitely skip past this because this is not spoiler free. So as someone who's not as huge of a Batman film as some people are, including my dad, I have to say that this is one of the most brilliant Batman films. You know, it's a neo-thriller take on the world's greatest detective. Like, that's the best way. If, if I was to summarize this film without giving anything away, that's what it would be. A neo-thriller on the world's greatest detective. Matt Reeves' vision and take on the Batman, it follows Christopher Nolan's footsteps, as it should, because most superheroes, even outside of the Batman films, a lot of directors have kind of followed in that director's uh, footsteps because he brought realism to superhero movies. It didn't always have to be bright and, and, and campy and cringy and cheesy. You could take you know, and it sounds crazy because super, not for Batman, because Batman's just a man with gadgets. So he's a little bit, it's, it's a little bit easier to make him more realistic. But, you know, I know it sounds kind of crazy, like, oh, Superman, though, you can't fly. You can't fly in real life. How can you make a super um, man movie realistic? But I think what helps is when you take real life events 
and you make these characters have real human emotions and characteristics, you can kind of convince an audience that outside of the supernatural aspects of superhero movies, this can feel like a real film. Like, I'm really sick of, you know, movie snobs and film snobs kind of discrediting superhero movies for that fact because they're if, if marvel has shown you anything it's that superhero movies should be taken seriously they're incredible spider-man was incredible and it, they don't necessarily always have to be dark to be real but i definitely see christopher nolan's influence on a lot of the superhero movies following the batman trilogy and matt reeves he definitely followed in his footsteps but what made him what made this movie different and what set it apart from what Christopher Nolan had done for the trilogy is that he made I feel like he almost made this movie even darker than Nolan's and it's not only dark but it's super twisted too and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that he added in the serial killer um element to the Riddler framing the Riddler as more of a sadistic serial killer gives the film a horror edge that feels supernatural it it to me it didn't seem odd to 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 birth it didn't seem odd to make the riddler a serial killer i don't think it was a, a take that seemed to be super outside i mean it was outside of the box in a good way but it didn't it didn't seem like it didn't fit if that makes sense it it, it fit for a character like him it fit to make his riddles his signature like they say every serial killer has a signature it made sense that Matt Reeves went in that direction. There's one scene in particular, it's the opening scene where I think he's some, cause this all had to do with like, a little background on the movie is that the Riddler was pretty much attacking, um, what should we call it? Like councilmen and, and people in government and, and, and public figures essentially, people who were slimy and not doing things that were in the best interest of the citizens of Gotham. So that included presidential nominees, people running for, I think, mayor, like things like that. He was attacking them. And in the opening scene, I forgot what this guy's job title is, but he was, he had something to do with the government and, or he had, no, he had something to do with like, um, politics in Gotham is the best way I can describe it. And the camera is in the Riddler's point of view. You're, it's almost as if you're sitting inside of the Riddler's mask. You can see his, his goggles in the frame. And he's watching this man. And then we pan into the man's house or apartment or whatever. And he's watching the news. He's so consumed in it that he's not paying attention to his surroundings. And then there's a flash of light from the TV. And all of a sudden, you see the Riddler standing behind him. And when I'm not going to hold you, I jumped a little and a lot of people in the theater actually gasped because it kind of caught us off guard. It really felt like a horror movie. And then the Riddler kills him in a really sadistic manner. I think he hits him over the head with, oh, I don't remember now, but it was really like brutal. It was a, it was a brutal murder. And then Batman comes in, Gordon comes in, you know, they observe this crime scene and that's when they find a letter to the Batman. And so this pretty much keeps on happening until Bruce Wayne realizes that he's also on the Riddler's hit list. And he realizes that this has to do with him as much as it has to do with the people that the Riddler is targeting. And that's what makes this film a little bit different than any other Batman movie that I've personally watched. I haven't seen all of them. I've seen 
the first film in Michael Keaton's Batman series. I've seen one of the films in Christian Bale's. I plan on, on watching the rest of the trilogy. And I've seen Ben Affleck's Batman as well, which I think he's probably one of the worst. I've heard bad things about George Clooney's. I can't include him in this one because I've never seen his movie, so I can't throw in my opinion there. But that's definitely what sets apart Matt Reeves' Batman film from the rest. Also, the sound design. Like, before I get into anything else, I told my dad before we even watched the film that I was looking forward to, to seeing or hearing, really, the sound design, how they put together that, how they packaged that, and also I wanted to hear the score. And when I tell you this Batman theme is incredible, that's one of the things that everybody is talking about. That's got to be now probably, and it comes very close to Wonder Woman's theme because I really love her theme, but that theme is so good. I don't remember who is in charge of the score and who cre and I don't remember who created the sound design for this film, but it's incredible. And again, a lot to live up to because it was, of course, going to be compared to what Christopher Nolan did with the trilogy. And in The Dark Knight, that sound design was incredible. So incredible that I wrote a whole paper about it for one of my classes. And I definitely think in the future that Professor is definitely going to allow... This movie is definitely going to be nominated for the Oscars for Best Sound Design. It really should be. It's incredible. But I'm pretty sure that my old professor is going to add that movie to the list of films that people can write about because it really is incredible. Like I said, that moment where you realize the Riddler's in this man's apartment. Like, not only was it freaky because he wasn't there before and then he, he was suddenly behind him, but also the sound. Um, and that's part of what makes a, a good horror movie convincing is that you build a chilling and horrific sound to kind of leave the audience on edge. And I think that they did that really well for this movie. Now, it's said that one of the inspirations for this film was The Long Halloween, which is like a storyline from the comics involving Batman. I just kind of got into it myself and um, I am super happy that they gave us the comic part, one of the comics for The Long Halloween, because I always kind of wanted to read the comic version. But last year, they made two movies. They, they broke it up. It was part one and part two of The Long Halloween, and it's on HBO Max if you guys haven't seen it yet. And um, I really enjoyed that storyline. So when I read that it was one of the inspirations behind this movie, I was even more excited for it because I'm like, from the trailer, this already looks dark. I really think they're going to do that storyline justice because it is a dark storyline. And it takes place, obviously, the long Halloween. It takes place as the seasons go by. Now, they didn't draw everything that happened from the long Halloween into this film, but you can definitely see its influence. So Robert Pattinson's Batman is very moody. He's jaded. He's kind of a recluse in this one. I guess you can argue that he's kind of... And well, Batman's never friendly, but it seems like Battinson, as, as they're calling him, seems to be more of a recluse. He doesn't want anything to do with public life. Like, even one of the one of the candidates running for mayor, I think it was, pointed out the fact that he didn't do any of the things that his father did when he was a public figure for Wayne Enterprises. He doesn't do any philanthropy. He's just a ghost. And I think it's fitting for the character at that point in his life. He's in his, I think, early to mid-20s. He's only been taking on the mantle of Batman for two years, I think they said in the film. So, like I said, this does make sense for the character because he's still learning. It's not like he's 
Ben Affleck's Batman where he's 40, he's in his 40s, he's probably got 20 years under his belt, you know, he's still learning, he's still making mistakes and and trying to, I guess, adjust to being, I don't want to say a savior, but a hero for Gotham, whatever you want to call him. And though he's still unlikable, he's not as unlikable as Ben Affleck's Batman where, you know, he's older, he's grumpy, like, you know, this one seemed to be more jaded by his past and kind of in a way ready to give up on Gotham but by the end of the film you realize that he realizes that he like himself Gotham needs to be able to have time to grow and evolve and and he realizes that he is even though he doesn't see big changes he is kind of helping them along if that makes sense another reason this uh Batman movie stands out compared to the other Batman films is that this Batman struggles seem more real and again that that's part of the reason why it makes sense that he's so jaded and recluse because in this film instead of you know hailing Thomas Wayne as a hero that you know Bruce needs to live up to and become he Bruce Wayne eventually learns the truth about his father's past and realizes that hey maybe he's not the cookie cutter super clean guy that I thought he was and then I feel like Bruce spent his most of his childhood and his teenage life and some of his adulthood too trying to be more like his father. So when he learns that his father had inadvertently caused another man's murder, he has to reassess who he is because he realizes, okay, I can't, I don't want to do, I don't want to be like my father because I don't want the things that, I don't want the same things that led him to kill a man inadvertently to lead me down the same path. I don't want to be just like him. And I feel like that caused a dilemma because when your whole life you've been trying to model yourself after someone else and you realize that, hey, this person may not be perfect, then that causes kind of like an identity crisis because you have to figure out what you want to be. But I kind of think that's what Bruce needed because everybody should be their own person. And he couldn't fight Batman as anybody else but himself, if that made sense. I think that was a part of his growth. And I think a lot of people go through that. I think we all, whether it's our parents or not, we idolize people, we realize they're not perfect, and then we have to kind of figure things out on our own and become our own person. And, and even outside of idolizing people, I think we all go through an identity crisis. So I feel like some of the issues that Bruce Wayne and Batman were facing in this film felt more real, it felt more human. You know, even the Riddler, one of the quotes that he left Batman was um, another, it was something along the lines of when, um, when a father dies, the deaths of his sin must be paid by the son. So essentially, even though Bruce Wayne was innocent because Thomas Wayne was murdered, someone had to pay for those sins and it had to be Bruce. So I felt like that made, that was another way in which this film felt more realistic compared to the other superhero movies that we've gotten in the past. And that also ties into the Riddler's sort of motivation for doing what he's doing. You know, it's it 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 tackles on the message or not really the message, but on themes of how orphans are treated in orphanages and how the rich is treated, you know, because part of the Riddler's problem was when Bruce's parents died they called him an orphan and, and he felt like he was an actual orphan he knew what it was like to suffer in those homes meanwhile Bruce is laid up in a mansion and he's already rich he was born with a silver spoon in his mouth he never had to deal with the actual 
real life issues that come with being an orphan. And so I feel like there's takes on that. It, there are takes on corrupt political figures and the government and even police. So that was another way in which I feel like a lot of the critics or the critiques in superhero movies tend to be that they ignore these real life issues and they paint these superheroes as saviors and, you know, they can do no wrong. And, you know, because the superhero exists and they're getting rid of all these problems and everything is perfect. But I feel like this Batman film showed you the opposite and showed what it would really be like if someone dressed up in a bat suit and was trying to stop crime and, and make the world a better place. These are the, this is a realistic take on what it would be like to go through something like that. Robert Pattinson's take on the Batman is also very brutal. Like in one of the first fight scenes that Batman has, he's just smashing this guy's face in. Like <laughs> it's really brutal. He's, he doesn't hold his punches at all. And again, it's another highlight of how young he is. You know, he's got all of this rage. He's pissed about his past. He's pissed about the crime. He's pissed at seeing innocent people getting killed and hurt. And he's taking out all of that rage on the villains. And another one of my favorite sound design moments because the crunches behind those punches, and that, that rhymed, but for real, the crunches that you hear every time his knuckles connect to that guy's face, it sounds real. And it makes you flinch because this Batman does not give a single fuck He's just trying to stop crime and corruption. He doesn't care how he has to do it. And that's why when you hear him and other people calling him vengeance, when he says, I am, and when they say, who are you? And he says, I am vengeance. You hear that name being called back to him throughout the film from Catwoman to the other um, criminals that he's fighting. So Matt Reeves made it a real point to have that theme keep coming back throughout the film. And it makes sense because like I said, this is more of a, he's a young, brutal, I'm not holding my punches Batman. So to call himself vengeance, that makes sense. It's it's a very brutal take on Batman, but I kind of like it. It gives him edge and it also pairs well with this version of the Riddler, in my opinion. Another major strength of this film is that it doesn't spend a whole lot of time telling but showing. That's something that can be very hard even for me when I write scripts or I write stories. I have to remember to show my audience instead of telling them what's going on. It's just more effective storytelling and it keeps you engaged especially when your film is nearly three hours long. It definitely will keep the audience more engaged. Of course I have to talk about Zoe Kravitz as Catwoman this moment reminded me of how I felt when watching Batman versus Superman, but with Wonder Woman, how she kind of came in and, and stole the show, even though it's about these two men. Now here comes Wonder Woman and she's probably the only highlight of the film. Now Catwoman wasn't the only highlight of this film. It was a strong film altogether, but she was a major highlight of the movie. I think that Zoe Kravitz was perfectly casted for this role and when they announced that she was playing Catwoman even before I saw a trailer or a clip I said that makes sense I'm like I feel like based on what I've seen of Zoe Kravitz and other work I feel like she could pull off the sleek sexiness that's needed for this role but not only did she give the sex appeal of Catwoman I guess for lack of a better word she also gave the character more emotional depth She's more than sexy or a flirt. She has a real purpose and her own motives are separate from Batman's in the movie, but they all tie together. This film does a lot. 
It's almost three hours long. They could have faced the dilemma of a lot of filler or overcrowding. They have the Riddler's story. They have Penguin's story. They have Batman's. They have Catwoman's. If this was not written right, it could have been a clutterfuck of different storylines with a bunch of loose ends. But it all ties well together. And they did that really well with Catwoman and Batman. Not only do they do their own motives eventually cross each other's, but they both handle it in different ways. And that's also why in the comics, Batman and Catwoman have that, that, that moral dilemma. Because Batman is trying to be more of a hero and do things not completely by the book, but a little bit more by the book. Meanwhile, Catwoman is borderline anti-hero villain. She does things for her own gain and for the gain of the less fortunate. And she doesn't care how she does it. And so by the time this movie ends, you see them go their separate ways, which is not a surprise because he wants to save Gotham. She's kind of given up on Gotham. Now, again, I'm not a huge comic reader, so I'm not sure if Falcone is her father in the comics as well. But making him her father in this movie played out beautifully because, again, that allowed their Batman and Catwoman storyline to eventually intersect. Batman already has his own issues with Falcone because he finds out that Either he killed his father or he made the call to have his father killed. And we find out that Falcone is not only Catwoman's father, but she he also killed her mother. So they, they both have their own motives for kind of wanting Falcone's head, except Batman wants to handle it in the moral way where it's, I'm gonna capture him, bring him to the police, and the justice system will handle it. Meanwhile, Catwoman wants her own justice. She wants to take it into her own hand. She wants to kill him. And it's and she only doesn't kill him because Batman stops her from doing so. Paul Dano is brilliant in the role as the Riddler. I He was so unhinged that he left me feeling very uneasy after I finished the movie. Very, very uneasy. And another thing, I keep saying this, but there are so many things about this film to love and I know I've been talking about this for super long but come on there's it's a three-hour film there's so much to discuss but what I loved about this film as well is that I feel like when you hear Batman or you hear that they're doing a Batman movie people automatically want the Joker and there are plenty of other villains good villains that directors and screenwriters really could be focusing on before we get to the Joker to me the Joker is like when you get to the big bad at the end of a video game you saved the Joker for last. So I was really happy to see Matt Reeves focus on other villains in the Batman universe before pulling in the Joker. And in my opinion, the Riddler, the way they set the Riddler up in this film made him feel kind of just as big as the Joker, even though we know he's not. He had the same type of, what's the word I'm looking for? I guess unhinged is, is, a, is a good word to use. That same, he gave me this the same level of like fear and uneasiness as the Joker. He was just as sick as him, which is why that end credit, which I'll get into a little later, makes sense. But I am glad that Matt Reeves focused on other villains first before really trying to introduce the Joker because he is a big important villain and you want to take your time. If you if he already introduced the Joker into the first film, if he had a big part in the first film, if you, you leave your audience with nothing to hold on to. Now when we walk away from this movie, if the Riddler is this good, if Penguin was this good, then the Joker is going to be incredible. So I do like that. I do like that he focused on other villains first. 
the only real criticisms I saw of this film was the length. And I don't have that same criticism because I felt like the movie had incredible pacing. It kept me engaged. And by the time the movie ends, you don't realize that you've been sitting in the theater for almost three hours, unless you hated the film. But I left the film feeling like I watched a two-hour movie. Like, to me, it didn't seem obscenely long. And even some of the slow parts of the movie, it was a good build-up for some of the more chaotic and rapid pace scenes like a movie can't be on go all the time from start to finish you are going to need some of those slow moments to kind of break it up and those slow moments were didn't feel like filler to me it felt necessary in the film there's nothing I felt like they needed to cut out of the film so I don't have that same criticism and it's really the only one that I've seen of the film and that tells me everything I need to know about how good this movie is because that's all people really had to knock the film for And also, we have to talk about how drastic Colin Farrell's transformation for the Penguin was because it took me a moment to realize that's who he was because they really, that that, the movie um, makeup and prosthetics department for this film did a hell of a job with him. And I think Colin Farrell mastered comedy in this film without it feeling forced or feeling like it didn't feel, what, what am I trying to say here? How, how can I phrase this in a way that makes sense? I saw someone agree with me and they, they worded it a lot better. But Colin Farrell was the comedic relief of this film. And it wasn't like he was, it's not like they wrote him to be funny, but it was his delivery and his wit that made him funny. There are certain things you just couldn't help but laugh when he said them because it's kind of like his character was having fun poking the bear when it came to Batman and and being obnoxious and being difficult and that's kind of what made him funny and it gave the film some slight comedic relief without trying too hard is the best way that I can phrase that it makes complete sense that they're gonna give him a spin-off he's in the film enough but he's not because he's not the main villain he's not a central point in the movie he's like I said he to me he's more of the comedic relief he wasn't really he really didn't have a hand in a lot of the murders or the things that were going wrong. That was really all the Riddler and his minions, but not really Penguin. So it makes sense that they are giving him a spinoff. I kind of think it's a movie. It may be a show. I think it's for HBO Max, but I definitely plan on tuning into that because I did enjoy him in the film. Now, before I wrap up my thoughts on this movie, we definitely have to talk about the Joker teaser at the end and that's why I said it made sense the end credit made sense because you have the Riddler who's just as twisted and sick as the Joker and because this is early on in Batman's crime fighting career it makes sense that the Joker is not quite the Joker yet and the brief glimpse that you get of his face towards the end he you can see his scars and obviously later In his later years, he wears makeup so you can't see the scars. So this is a much younger Joker. I think the Riddler and him are around the same age because, again, the Riddler is young. And they end up next to each other in Arkham. I believe that's what the Sane Asylum is called in that universe. And they're kind of... And he doesn't give it away fully. He just makes makes some kind of witty remark about a clown. And automatically, you know that he's the Joker, especially when they start to laugh. You know that laugh he does at the end. And I believe, I forgot his name, but he was an Eternal. And so he's going to be playing the Joker. 
Obviously, I feel like we'll get another teaser of his Joker in the second film, but I really do think, or at least I think it's a smart idea for Matt Reeves to save him for the third and final film in the Battinson verse, is what I'm going to call it. But that was a nice treat, and we and I guess that's as close to an end credit as you get. Spoiler alert, there is no end credit really, there's just a question mark at the end of the film that says goodbye. But they probably figured, hey, they're going to go crazy over this Joker teaser, so they don't really need an end credit anyway, and that's fine. So to wrap up my thoughts, The Batman is the best Batman film produced in a long time, and it certainly meets the hype. And if you're still on the fence about this movie, even after everybody else's praise of it, let this review right here on the Listen to Me Speak podcast finally convince you to watch it. It is a long movie, but it is worth your time. Finally, moving on from the Batman in DC, there are rumors of a Scarlet Witch standalone project in the works. Now, it is not clear if it'll be a film or another Disney Plus show, but considering we all know the hype that Doctor Strange 2 is going to generate and live up to, I think by now between WandaVision and Doctor Strange 2, It'll be enough for Marvel to finally be like, you know what? There's enough interest in an actual film. And I think there's a lot that Wanda hasn't learned about herself. There's a lot that we haven't learned about Wanda. There's a lot of storyline, great storylines I'm, I'm, I'm hearing involving her in, in the comics and how she's connected to other characters. And the fact that most likely she is a stronger wizard than Doctor Strange. And that's saying something because he's one of the strongest. I think all of that is enough to convince Marvel that they should do a Scarlet Witch movie, please don't make the same stupid mistakes that they made with Black Widow. Definitely capitalize on the hype and excitement and the demand for more Scarlet Witch. Because still, in on all of the Marvel shows that they have released, WandaVision is still, to me, the best. I feel like it meets the level of a standalone Marvel film. The Spider-Man movies, like I feel like the other shows, you know that they are built for TV and that they're, they've scaled them down a lot. But WandaVision felt like it had the same excitement and thrill as the movies, if that made sense. So I definitely think that if they're working on a Scarlet Witch project, it definitely should be a film and not just something for Disney+. Plus Because we already had that with WandaVision. And I do hope, because they, I don't know when the Agatha spinoff is coming out. But I'm pretty sure Wanda will make an appearance in that show. I will be shocked if she doesn't. Speaking of Marvel, though, a season two of What If will be released this year a lot quicker than I thought it was going to be. I anticipate. But, you know, that makes sense because What If came out in 2020. So it's technically been almost two years since the first season. So I guess that makes sense. And I enjoyed some episodes more than others from the What If series. When I see the trailer and see which stories they're going to be tackling, I'm going to see... Um, how I feel about a season two, but considering they had stories that that were important for this upcoming phase, I'll probably watch season two anyway because it may be it may include more Easter eggs about future movies in this phase. So I'll probably watch it anyway. Why not? It was also announced that Abbott Elementary got renewed for season two, and I'm so happy. It's so well deserved. The show is hilarious. Quinta Brunson created something. Amazing. I think, like I said, when I first reviewed the first couple of episodes of the show, it really does give us that 
same magical feeling that the office and parks and recreation gave that that fake documentary comedy and it's so witty the the jokes are on point the cast is talented the actress who plays Ava the principal I think her name is Janelle she is perfectly cast every time she opens up her mouth I crack up laughing the show is really gold and I feel like TV has changed a lot over the years, but this this show gives me that old feeling. And I think a lot of people feel the same way. And it's so great seeing black people win, of course. You know, this is a black woman's creation. And like I said, I fell in love with Quinto when I watched her on the Black Lady Sketch Show. And when she left to do her own thing, I said, I'm going to tune in because I thought she was hilarious. And I really, really wanted success for this show because... From the first episode, I just knew it was going to be something worth watching. And, you know, ABC does not play when it comes to ratings. If, if you are not a highly rated show, they will give you the boot. And Abbott Elementary has been doing amazing in ratings. And I think Hulu helps as well. That whole, that, that deal that ABC has with Hulu really is effective for them. It's uh, Some streaming services have it too, but it's mostly a Hulu thing. It's next day air where it'll air live and then the next day it's on streaming service and and they will factor those streams into ratings i believe so it's just been doing amazing so i'm not overly surprised it got renewed but i'm so glad that it is and i hope it has a long successful run and i will definitely be tuning in for the rest of this season as well as season two because like i said i can't wait to see what they come up with moving on from abbott elementary into some current thoughts on the this is us final season so far so I believe they've aired about eight or nine episodes and thankfully there won't be any more hiatuses until May when the finale, when the series finale airs. So I feel like this is a good time for me to share some of my thoughts while I still remember them. I'm going to start off with Toby. I can't stand Toby anymore. I remember when I loved him as a character. I loved him and Kate as a couple because I felt like he was what she needed. He was what she needed to come out of her shell, to open up, to be vulnerable, to allow herself to love. They were just so good together. And don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with betting, bettering yourself as a person. He lost weight. He finally has a job that he loves, and that's great. But I feel like all of those things have, it's kind of starting to turn him into an elitist where he's looking down at Kate for how she's feeding their son and how she's even raising their son when he's, I, I believe he's on the other side of the country for this job. So they're, do, they're a long distance at the moment because Kate finally has a job that she loves. And I feel like he's becoming in his own mind more important in their marriage. He's got the more esteemed job. He's making more money. He's doing this and that. So, you know, as much as he wants to be with his son, he's got a job that's so important that he has to sacrifice these things and he's taking care. Like, I, I really feel like he has that mindset and it's really starting to piss me off. And I think I have fully decided that I don't like Toby after this episode. Based, I feel like his, his concerns about their son's weight is valid. They both have genes those jeans where putting on weight is super easy for them. I get that. But I feel like it's a conversation they could have had not around her family and not in the way that he did it. Like his tone, it was just so belittling. 
it angered me so much. And it's very obvious that we know they don't end up together. We know that because in the flash forwards, Kate seems to be getting married to somebody else. When Rebecca is dying, I believe Randall calls Toby and Toby admits that he doesn't think they want him around. So it's very clear they end up divorced. I'm pretty sure that Kate ends up marrying her coworker, her boss technically, that she works with at the school. She teaches kids to sing, for those of you who don't watch the show. And there's a little bit of a flirtationship between the two of them. And in one, I don't think it was this past episode, but they have a conversation in which he admits that he had been married before, he got divorced. Like they're foreshadowing what we already kind of know is happening. And they're making Toby really, really unlikable. And so now at this point, I'm just waiting for the divorce to happen because we all know what's coming soon. And, but yeah, I will say the changes in Toby's life, to summarize those thoughts, the changes in Toby's life are making him extremely unlikable. I also want to highlight Kate and Rebecca's growth. Rebecca's Kate's mom. Obviously for much of Kate's life, they never really got along. She, I feel like Kate really resented her mother. She was jealous of her. She had the body that Kate wanted. She, they both had similar interests in music. She was a singer. She may have even had the love that Kate wanted for herself. They just didn't get along. And I think Kate wanted so badly not to be like her mother, but it ended up, her relationship with her own daughter kind of mirrored the relationship she had with her own mom, where they love each other to the death, but on the other side, they can't stand each other. But there were even moments that they do in the flashbacks where when Kate's still living with her mother at home, you know, Randall and Kevin both flew the coop. When Kate was really, I mean, not Kate, when Rebecca was really going through emotional turmoil, Kate was there to hold her and console her and be there for her. And they really bonded, I think, during that time. I don't know what went wrong after that. But it's little moments like that, that when Rebecca finally decides that Kate is going to make the final decisions um, in case her husband can't, it's really not a shock because when the rest of her kids left, Kate stayed. And even, even in present day, Kate's still there for her in the way that I feel like Rebecca needs. So it wasn't a complete shock that she made Kate out of all of her kids the overseer. I know a lot of us probably expected it to be Randall because they were, Randall and Rebecca were really, really close. I think their relationship changed after he found out that, that Rebecca kept his biological father's identity hidden from him. But they were really close at one point and he was her caretaker at, at one point in the series so I think some of us expected it to be Randall but it does make sense that it's Kate and I love seeing their growth because they've come a long way as mother and daughter they really did I I never thought that they would eventually get their shit together and I really want to more so blame Kate Rebecca has some faults but I really feel like Kate made it so difficult for them to have a relationship and now that she has her own children and her mother is sick. Obviously, that changed the nature of their relationship. But it's really nice to see them kind of get along and, and have the relationship they probably should have always had. I feel like we're seeing growth, even if they're not always in great ways. We're seeing growth with all the characters except for Kevin. Even the mother of his child, Madison, is growing. She's opening herself up to love and she's found it and she's happy and she's enjoying her life and she's making friends. Even Madison has grown and Kevin is still stagnant. 
he's so stagnant to the point that people really feel like when the series ends, he ends up with what's her name? His first wife, his first love, I, I, Sophie. Some people think he's going to end back up with Sophie because Kevin just, I don't know if circle the drain is the right term, but Kevin just does not know how to let go of the past. He He's stubborn. It's like there's no growth in his character. It feels like I'm, I mean, there's been tiny growth. There's been tiny in very small increments. But if you told me I was watching season three, Kevin, I wouldn't be surprised. There is little to no growth with his character. It is frustrating to watch. And now we're almost at the end of the series. So he's barely, he's barely going to grow. I mean, there's a final time jump where he seems to be in his 60s, maybe. I'm hoping that at, by that at that point he grows. But so far, it is frustrating watching him as a character because it's the same old song and dance each season with his character. You know, Madison called off their wedding, rightfully so, because she knew deep down that Kevin was not in love with her. And now that she's moving on with someone else, now all of a sudden he can't let her go. It's very, he's very frustrating to watch. You know, after Toby, I think he's just as unlikable at the moment. But those are some of my early my current, not early, my current thoughts on This Is Us, once the show ends, I might, hey, maybe I might do a special episode just on This Is Us because I feel like it's one of those shows that is fun to just break down. And obviously we can't, I can't do any theories anymore because that's, the theories for that show are always fun to read as, as well. But it's definitely a fun show to talk about and break down because it's so complex and these humans on the show are so complex and, and difficult that it's fun to break down and break apart and do things like that. So I'll, maybe I'll do a bonus episode on This Is Us, but I try to, when it comes to shows I really love, I try to give my thoughts early in the season, my thoughts midway through the season, and then kind of do a recap of the season and give my my final thoughts on the season. And for This Is Us, it's a big one because the show is ending, so I might just do a separate thing for that. But definitely let me know what you guys think too. Not even on just This Is Us, but on the Batman, everything that I talk about, albums I talk about I definitely want to hear what you guys think too I already know what I think so it would be nice to hear what some of you guys if feel about these things whether you agree with me or you disagree I'm down to hear all of it so moving on to this is us into some not so shocking news but it was announced that allegedly the reel is ending after eight seasons and I say allegedly because Lonnie one of the hosts from the show spoke out and said that she did not receive an official call yet but to keep the crew who may lose a job in our thoughts and prayers. To me, that doesn't sound good, even though she's kind of denying that she got an official call. I do think that that's the real is ending. I, I do think that report was true. I think it's odd that Lonnie waited so long to speak out. I feel like if it was just a rumor, all of them kind of would have spoken out already. All of them have been silent, but Lonnie now at this point. I do think that the studio and the network have made the call to themselves, but they just haven't called the women yet. It will be interesting to see how they handle this rumor while continuing to film for the show. I'll have to ask my mom because I no longer watch, but she does. So I'll have to ask her how they seem when they come back next week for new episodes. But I, I do kind of believe it's a wrap. I think all of us saw it coming, like I said on another episode. A lot of the women are already booking other projects, like Adrian is a consistent host on a new show. So I definitely think that the time has come for the show to be over. I think it ran its course. I think they never really fully re 
covered after Tamira left. And Tamar, they got by, but then to lose another main original host, it just it just wasn't the same after. But I'm pretty sure it'll maybe it'll be confirmed whether the story is true or not by next week. Who knows? Now, before I get into the music segment of my podcast, I did want to talk briefly about the Miss Marvel trailer that was released like just a couple of hours ago. And it's going to be a quick thing because I only watched the trailer once. I, I don't know much about the character. But from what I've read in the comments, a lot of people seem to be unhappy with the trailer because apparently they changed up the character's powers. Apparently her original power from the comics is that she's kind of like she's kind of like Miss Incredible. She's stretchy, like she can stretch her arms and legs and hands, you know, very far and very long. But in the trailer, she's she still has the stretchiness, but her powers are more cosmic based, more similar to Photon and Captain Marvel's power. And a lot of people were upset about that and confused as to why they went in that direction. I'm assuming that the nature of her power has to do with a lot of her, the character's identity. And so they feel like it's a mistake, kind of like how I felt about the Flash and his lightning in DC. My only guess is that they made her powers more similar to Captain Marvel's because it's probably likely that she's one of the Marvels that are going to be included in the Captain Marvel sequel. And it's from the trailer, you can tell that she really idolizes Captain Marvel and superheroes. So I guess they felt like it was a smarter direction to have her mirror Captain Marvel. I don't agree with that because we already have other people who do. Monica Rambeau being one of them. Monica Rambeau is essentially like Captain Marvel's daughter, at least in the movies. She helped Maria raise Monica from a young age before she went missing. And we already know that there's some tension between Monica and Carol. So now that Monica has similar powers to Carol, and they're obviously going to be in each other's presence again. I feel like that storyline makes more sense because Photon eventually takes up the Captain Marvel mantle. So to have Miss Marvel also be similar to them and then have Carol be a mentor to her, it's just too much going on. But that's the only reason I can think of for them to make Miss Marvel's powers mirror Carol's. I believe from a little bit of the research I did, Miss Marvel never really takes up Carol's mantle. She's kind of her own thing. At best, she's a mentor, kind of like Tony was to Spider-Man before he died. But it doesn't make, if that's the reason that they changed her powers to mirror Carol's, it doesn't make that, it doesn't make sense because we already have that for Monica. As far as the trailer itself, it seemed kind of goofy to me. It doesn't really seem like my cup of tea. I'm probably going to end up watching it only because if she is in the Marvels, I feel like there's an Easter egg for Captain the Captain Marvel sequel that we're going to need to see. And if she is going to appear in the movie, I do want to know a little bit more about her character. But, it, you know, it does... It's One thing I'll give it is it seems to have a lot of personality. I think maybe it seems a little too kid-like. I mean, she is 16, but it seems to be a little bit more Disney and kitty like in that way. Not in the same way that Spider-Man was when, he, when his first movie came out, where he's 16 and he's a young kid and he does a lot of dumb stuff that kids would do at his age but it still felt geared to everyone. This feels like if they dis Marvel decided to allow one of their Disney Plus shows to air on the Disney Channel. Like it just seems really goofy and campy and and and, and kitty like it has nothing to do with how bright it is either. That's just how I feel. 
So I'm on the fence. I'll wait for another trailer to appear. If, if I decide to watch episode one and it's that unbearable, then I'll just watch a little recap thing on YouTube of what happened in the show before I watch Captain Marvel 2. But those are some of my short thoughts on the Miss Marvel trailer. Let me know what you guys think. If you think I'm bugging or being a hater, let me know. But that's just kind of how I feel about it. So that wraps up my movie and TV segment. And now we're finally on to the music part of things. I wasn't as behind on music, it seems, as I was with um, my movie and TV show content because there was just a lot going on. Music has been kind of slow. And, you know, from the rumors I read late last year, March was supposed to be a busy month. February was rumored to be a busy month, too. So I don't know what's going on there. I feel like part of the reason music has slowed down is because now artists are allowed to tour now. A lot of tours have gone on this year without a hitch. So it makes sense that artists are now shifting their attention onto touring instead of focusing on putting out music. And that makes sense for a lot of people like the Justin Bieber's, the Drake's, the Weekends that have put out a lot of music to make up for the fact that they couldn't tour. But now they have all this music and touring can begin kind of like normal or essentially like normal. So eh, I don't have to worry about putting something else out. I just, I'll just go on tour. Even Drake has announced a couple of shows in I think Toronto and New York coming up so rather I'm on the fence about thinking if Drake is going to put something out this year now I, I kind of thought he would he still might because he seemed to be in studio mode at one point but he may shift his focus into touring again he does still have that Vegas residency that he can still do I, I'm surprised that he didn't take advantage of that at all last year but I feel like that's why music has been so slow the shift has been towards touring i think billy eilish is on tour right now the weekend just i think he just sold what's it that called where you you the first day of the your tour tickets being available whatever his were just made available and i think he sold out a bunch of arenas already justin bieber's on tour i'm trying to think of who else but yeah so that seems to be the thing right now so luckily for me i didn't miss out on a whole bunch of music so i've been able to kind of listen to albums that were finally on my list for once revisit albums that I love that came out a couple of months ago. I finally listened to Earth Gang's Ghetto Gods album. So, so good. I really have to um, listen to it more. But for the the couple of listens I gave that album front to back, I really, really enjoyed it. Definitely better than their debut album. I'm, d I'm not going to get into a review of their album yet for this episode just because I had a lot of other things to talk about. But definitely stay tuned for it because I definitely will circle back to the album eventually. But before I get into my Lucky Day album review, I wanted to get into some of the new singles that were released. And starting with, of course, Sweetest Pie by Megan Thee Stallion and Dua Lipa. Finally, finally, after a few misses, Megan has successfully found her crossover pop hit. I, this song is going to be a smash. It's going to be a smash. By the time the summer hits, don't be surprised if this hits number one. This is definitely going to be one of the, the summer records. I'm not going to lie, I was skeptical on if this collab would work, but I was proven wrong. Though Dua's sound and influence is very evident on the track, Megan rides the beat. Her flow was unfortunately still the same, but this beat is a great fit for both. A lot of what wasn't working for Megan on songs like the 34-35 remix or Beautiful Mistakes with Maruno, not Maruno, Maroon 5. A lot of the reasons those songs didn't work is that she wasn't writing the beat effectively. Her flow sounded way too harsh. It sounded extremely choppy when paired on a lot of those pop beats. It didn't fit. 
but on Sweetest Pie, the producers, I believe one of the producers is O.G. Parker, they were able to tailor it to both of their sounds. And it really, really works. Like, it, it, you could hear, okay, this makes sense for a duo record. If duo was to put it on one of her albums, okay, it makes sense there. If Megan puts it on one of her albums, okay, it makes sense there too. It, it's a great fit. Sweetest Pie has a strong hook fit for pop radio with 80s style disco pop keys. But it also has trap drums that allow Megan to flow through her verses. My favorite lines are, quote, you've never been to heaven, have you? And also, quote, ooh, this the ride of your life. Because Dua Lipa really did her fucking thing on this hook. Like, she came in, did what she had to do. Her voice sounded like butter on it. Like, when it comes to pop in the 2020s, Dua is definitely at the forefront of it. If you need a good pop hook, if you need a good pop hit in general dua is that girl for sure the next song i wanted to get into is the only fan remix by eric bellinger and amber riley aka riley now by now if you've listened if you've been listening to this podcast you know i love me some amber riley and i was happy to see her as a featured artist and i hope to hear her do more collabs because there are certain artists that i that i notice that i'm fans of whether they're underground or independent whatever they don't do a whole lot of features and so it kind of threw me when she announced that she was on this record but i really would love to see to see and hear her work with more um, artists because she's incredible and i feel like it's a good way to get other people locked in to her music as well Eric Bellinger is one of those chameleon artists that fits well with anybody, and on this track, it's no different. His falsetto works really well with Riley's higher and softer tone on this track because it's kind of, she's got this seductive tone on her verse and the hook, and they just, when once they come together on the chorus and sing together, their voices just melt really well. Overall, I really like this track, and they have good chemistry, and when Amber is ready to put out a full-length album, hopefully he makes an appearance. My favorite lines from Only Fan are, quote, the only thing I want is time. Don't need a dime from you. Just let me be your only fan. So that wraps up my reviews on some of the new singles from the last week. And finally, we are on to Lucky Day's new album, Candy Drip. Now, Candy Drip reads like a love letter to his muse. It's almost as if Candy Drip is a candy-coated fantasy world. It's sweet like candy. But when reality sets in, which it does by the end of this album, that fantasy is shattered and Lucky is forced to face harsh truths. The first part of this album is like Lucky's ideal world with his lover. It's nothing but sweet moments and pure love. But in reality, his lover may not love him as much as he needs her to. Candy Drip has the neo-soul and R&B that we got from him on Painted. On this album, though, he updates his sound a little and adds his take onto the R&B trap subgenre that has become popular over the years. And it works for him because it's his, like I said, it's his own take. He's not trying to sound like Bryson Tiller or Ty Dolla Sign. It fits in with the sound that we know and love from him already. Lucky and DeMille's chemistry is incredible and his decision to add other producers into the, me- into the mix doesn't take away from the magic they've created. It only adds to it and it again gives Lucky a slightly different sound. The melodies, harmonies, and vocals are sticky sweet. I'm telling you that's one of his strong suits. And speaking of strong suits, his pen. We have to talk about how great of a writer he is, not only for himself, but for other artists. And I think that's why his hooks are so good. His melodies are so good because 
he's writing them and he's good at what he does. Writing will always be a strong suit because when you know what you want to say and you know how to write what you want to say in the music effectively, it makes the music more authentic. It allows you more creative, not freedom, but it allows you more creative room because rather than having to tell somebody the direction you want to go in, you, you already know how to create it yourself so you can just do it. This album is written really, really, really well, really well. And for me, as someone who loves lyrics, I know not everybody cares about how strong lyrics are. People appreciate different things about music and that makes me no better than you. It's just a, a preference. But for me, great writing really will elevate an album because half of when it comes to, to music that's sung, at least, part of what makes a song good is the beat. A big portion is the vocal ability and the other big portion is the writing and Lucky has all three on this album. His tone in falsetto always reminded me of Usher, which is what caught my attention in the first place. So it is fitting that he samples Usher on Guess, which is a song I'm definitely going to get into later as we go through this album. But I brought up that point about Usher is because Usher's technique, his tone is something that I miss from male R&B singers. It's, you know, I don't want them all to sound like Usher. They should all sound like their own artist and Lucky Day sounds like his own person. It's just his tone is similar to Usher's, but, you know, he sounds like his own artist. But it's just the technique that Usher used to use when he sang. It's something about it that was just so fitting for R&B music that I miss hearing in, in other R&B artists. It, it makes sense in my head. I don't know if it makes sense to you, but if you know Usher, if you listen to his music, maybe you know what I'm talking about. It's not even just that fact that Usher used to make traditional R&B because... This Candy Drip to me is a traditional R&B album, but maybe it's just the power of the falsetto that I miss. You know, you hear it in artists like Lucky Day and Kyle Dion. I don't think I'm missing it in anybody else. It's just something about that particular tone that I miss in music that I hear a little bit in other artists, but I hear it more in Lucky Day. And it, it just makes the music sound more, maybe authentic is the word that I'm looking for. Lucky tends to do these vocal distortions in his songs, sometimes even harmonizing with them, which is unique and something that I feel like makes him authentic from other artists. I guess the best way to describe what he does is more of like a chopped and screwed voice. You don't hear that a lot in R&B, but it gives his song a dark edge to them as well. And again, you know, who else can you think of that really has that today? And I think that's what I love about where R&B is right now is because all of these artists have their own lane. None of them sound like each other. Bryson doesn't sound like Lucky. Lucky doesn't sound like her. Her doesn't sound like SZA. And SZA doesn't sound like Ella. They all do their own things. Kyle Dion is in a whole other space. He's kind of like in a Lenny Kravitz type of space where he mixes funk, R&B, rock, you know, all of those things together in a melting pot. Same with Division. Division and Lucky Day, they both make more traditional types of R&B music and they sound different from one another. Same with Leon Bridges. So I feel like the individualism that's been missing in other parts of music is not missing with R&B. We finally have different artists for different things and we can all just enjoy them. We, we don't have to feel like one of them is biting off another one's sound. They're all doing their own thing. And a lot of these R&B acts are also re-inspiring the older R&B elite artists as well so that's where I, that's what I love about where R&B is today and I think that's what sets Lucky Day apart in his own lane 
that this album is the perfect embodiment of today's R&B. You can hear the influence of other artists and decades, but Candy Drip clearly showcases Lucky Day's identity, like I said. And it, this album sounds like nothing else that's out right now. This album is a phenomenal follow-up to Painted and just might be the best R&B album of the year. It just feels like a natural progression from that album to now. My top tracks are Ego, Cherry Forest, Used to Be, Deserve, and Guess, but I want to give a couple of honorable mentions to Over, which I've reviewed before, and Godbody. They're both great tracks. Over is currently having its viral TikTok moment. So I'm glad that Lucky Day is getting his shine. But those are really, really good songs. They're just not quite better than the songs I have on my top tracks list. So I want to start off with Ego, a beautiful way to end an album. And for me, a lot of people focus on the intros on albums, but I feel like the outros are just as important. There are a lot of albums that I listen to where I'm like, these last two songs weren't needed. This song could have just been the outro. But Ego was a perfect way to end Candy Drip. The background vocals in the beginning of the track sound so lush, magical, and heavenly. One of his strong suits, like I said before, is his writing and his hooks. He always comes up with a hell of a melody, and his hooks are never cliche, half-ass, or super repetitive, and Ego is an example of that. When he writes, he writes with intention, which makes the music more passionate and believable. I also really love the production. It sounds like a live band, and that's in part due to DeMille, as that's his production style. My favorite lines are, quote, No one to save me. Your spark got lazy. Now our hearts are breaking. And again, I love the cadence in that melody right there. The next song on my list is Cherry Forest. What I love about this track is the way it's written. He's writing about a woman who has a love so great that others try to taint it, but the love is so pure that it cannot be shaken or ruined. He's got lines like, quote, Two drops so she can try and bring him home. Cause girl, you know he tied up by the man. And also quote, that beauty so evident they want to worry your pretty little skin. Hold your soul in a world oh so cold. He's essentially telling her to protect herself from evil people with evil intentions. He says himself at the end of the song that the cherry forest symbolizes new beginnings and to be careful of how you're spreading your love. Considering I view Candy Drip as a fantasy, Cherry Forest is the final break in that fantasy in his attempt to get back to reality and find a lover who actually loves him back. That also ties into ego because he's finally letting his ego go and he's attempting to find a real love and he's also accepting his own faults as to why maybe the relationship with the person this is all about did not work. So it all ties in together. My favorite lines from Cherry Forest are, quote, her love is the pinnacle of the world. It's heaven sent. Oh, they thought they could tell it shut up. It keeps spreading it out. Next is used to be. Now you know I love cinematic and dramatic songs and used to be is exactly that. The orchestra gives the song a grand, spacious and dramatic feeling. It's like looking out of the window while it's raining and feeling like the main character who just got their heart broken or something. Lucky's falsetto here is gorgeous. Everything about this song is beautiful, though. It's definitely tied for my all-time favorite song on this album. My favorite lines are, quote, Just waking up, the haze is going, the blur is clear, the rain, it pours. The next song on my list is Deserve. Now, this song is tied with Used to Be as my all-time favorite track from this album. Every R&B album should have a sexy deep cut, and on this album, it's Deserve. 
It has great melodies, a sexy falsetto, it's well-written, and it has slow, smoky production. This track reminds me of Roll Some Mo in some ways. Just the sexiness of that track is reminiscent here. This album is appropriately named Candy Drip because Lucky's voice on this track is sticky and sweet like candy. In the hook, he sings, everyone doesn't deserve sleep. And what he means is that not everyone deserves mind-blowing sex that puts them to sleep, but the way he phrases it makes it more sensual. My favorite lines are, quote, You know I be that right slow. Let me light roll. Baby eyes low, turn your lights low. Because of the melody. The last song on my top tracks list is Guess. Now, I've been waiting for a Lucky and Usher collab for years, and though I still haven't gotten it yet, the You Don't Have to Call sample is close enough for me for now. What I love about the song is his cadence in the production. Obviously, due to the sample, it has that early 2000s R&B sound. And since his tone is reminiscent of Usher's, it works, and he makes it his own. His vocals glide easily on the beat, and again, he provides us with more great melodies. It'll easily get stuck in your head. My favorite lines are, quote, It's on my head, I'm obsessed. I want to give you my best. We got it as good as it gets, but what's next, babe? Guess. Candy Drip completely avoids the sophomore slump and proves that Lucky has a strong identity in R&B. It's easily one of the best albums of the year with its sweet and slick melodies, beautiful falsettos, soulful production, and beautiful lyrics. Candy Drip is a fitting next step after Painted. So that wraps up my thoughts on Candy Drip. Let me know what you guys think. If you've listened to the album, if you haven't yet, definitely give it a chance. It is worth your time. Now, a few artists are dropping new singles soon, including Normani. She's dropping her new single, Fair, on the 18th. Chloe Bailey has got a new single, Treat Me, coming, I want to say, March 25th. I think that's a Friday. I kind of think that was the date. If not, if I'm, I'm wrong, it is coming soon. She's released a snippet. Normani released a snippet for her song as well. As well as Chris Brown, he's dropping his next single, Warm Embrace, on April 1st. Now, Chloe Bailey, when I first heard the Treat Me snippet, I wasn't crazy about it, but then I heard a longer snippet on her Instagram, and I liked it a lot more. I'm not crazy about some of the vocal effects, just because I feel like Chloe doesn't need them. I have the same critique on the snippet for Fair for Normani. There's a vocal effect at the end of the 30-second snippet she posted that just sounds awful. <laughs> I don't think she needs it at all, because it sounds so much like an effect. It doesn't sound like an actual voice. It sounds like... A computer and I, and I wasn't crazy about it but otherwise for the fair snippet it sounds good it sounds like a slow R&B track so far Normati has released all types of singles so I have no idea in which direction her album is heading in at this point I'm not even excited for fair I'm sure I'll like it but I'm not excited because at this point I'm tired of constant singles from her we just need an album Singles aren't going to be enough to hold my attention now, so I'm really hoping that an album comes from her this year. If it doesn't, I kind of throw my hands up with it. Chloe, I don't know why I expected her to release more last year after Have Mercy, but I do like the fact that she's taking her time and perfecting uh, the music. It's just, in some of her interviews, she made it seem like the album was coming a lot sooner. I imagine by July we'll get an album from her. The snippet from Chris Brown's next single, Warm Embrace, sounds promising. It's an R&B track. It sounds more up his alley. Iffy was hot garbage to me. I haven't listened to it since I reviewed it. But Warm Embrace sounds like the Chris Brown that I like, the type of bag I like him in. I think what he said about Breezy is that he's 
pulling inspiration from every album he's done so far and putting it into the album. I'm a little nervous for that if that's the case because that has the potential of being a jumbled mess because Chris Brown has dibbled and dabbled in a lot of different sounds over the years. I do want him to put out a more concise R&B album. Hopefully it's breezy, but with if he has a single, I have a feeling it's not going to be. But I hope the next album is more of a cohesive or concise R&B album for sure. And heavy on concise. I don't want another 40, 50 song album. I think he scaled back breezy. It was originally supposed to be a double album, but now it's going to be about 15 to 16 tracks. So hopefully he, he continues that. Now, before I end this episode, I wanted to get into the song of the week. And the song of the week is Hours and Hours by Money Long. One of my favorite songs. I'm obsessed with it. I play it all the time. I'm not sick of it. And keeping up with the theme of International Women's Month, every song of the week will be by a woman. And it makes perfect sense for that to be the first song I chose for this month because I'm obsessed with it. I'm sure if you have TikTok, if you have any social media, you have heard hours and hours at this point. So I won't tell you to listen to it because chances are you've already heard it. And if you have good taste, you like it as well. We have come towards the end of the episode. Thank you so much for listening to me rant and ramble for over an hour, especially over the Batman, but I couldn't help myself. It's so good. And lucky day as well. If you like this episode and you want to support Listen to Me Speak further, then please consider giving Listen to Me Speak a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you rate your podcasts. And if you enjoy the podcast and want to keep up with me further, then please head to my website, www.listentomespeak.com. There are links to all of my social media. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. I even have a YouTube page. Again, that's www.listentomespeak.com. And if you want to support this podcast, then please consider donating to my listeners' donations. It can be found on my website or on my Anchor page. And like I say every week, be kind to yourselves and thank you for listening to me speak.